Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Thanks for joining me for another edition of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by Jamie Fly. In July 2019, he became president for Radio Free Europe, which reports the news in 26 countries where a free press is banned by the government or not fully established. Prior to his position, Jamie was director of the Future of Geopolitics and Asia program and a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund. He also worked as a foreign policy advisor for Senator Marco Rubio. Jamie's also a friend and colleague, so I really appreciate him doing this. So, Jamie, thanks for joining us today. It's great to join you, Dan. So, Jamie, I I get a little bit of a blurb about what is Radio Free Europe, but could you just explain to Earth people who may not know what it is? I mean, I kind of know what it is, but tell us, what is Radio Free Europe? Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, is a multimedia news organization that promotes objective news and information in markets where it otherwise wouldn't be available to our audiences. We do so-called surrogate journalism. We're funded by the U.S. Congress. We obviously cover global events, including events in the United States, but our real value add is hiring journalists who can cover events in their own countries highlight issues which otherwise would be neglected in the information space in those countries because of the lack of choice usually in those markets. In many of the markets we operate in, the only options people have are state outlets controlled directly by the government. Independent outlets have often been forced out of business or pressured or harassed or kicked out of the country. And so we fill that void with our independent journalism. Now, when was it established? Our first broadcast, actually, was 70 years ago this year. It was a broadcast here to what was then Czechoslovakia. I'm sitting here at our headquarters in Prague. So we're actually celebrating our 70th anniversary this year. And it was established in the wake of World War II at a time, obviously, when we were entering a period of significant competition between the United States and the Soviet Union. And I think there were the people at that time who were the founders of this organization and of U.S. international broadcasting more generally really saw the importance of information in that emerging competition. And I think there are a lot of interesting parallels to the current moment where information is, quite frankly, probably even more important now. And if you look at what some of the authoritarian regimes that the United States and Europe are competing with are kind of throwing back into our own societies but also in the way that they use information to try to maintain their grip on power and their control over their own citizens. Yeah, exactly. So when the Cold War ended, was there a rethink about Radio Free Europe? So there was a vibrant debate that I've been told about and read about in the 90s in particular. I think the historical assessment is that the the two radios, because for the first several decades, we were actually two separate radios, both operating out of Munich, Germany, one broadcasting to the Soviet Union, the other broadcasting to the Warsaw Pact countries in Europe. You know, there was a sense that we had played a key role in the events of 1989 in providing the news and information that the publics in those countries were really hungry for. 
We had achieved significant market dominance in many of the places that we were broadcasting to, like Poland and Czechoslovakia and Hungary and Romania. But then there was a question of, well, now what? Do we really need this sort of institution as democracy is hopefully taking hold in these countries? There was a vibrant debate in Congress, which, as I said before, funds us and was debating whether it should continue to allocate U.S. taxpayer dollars. And ultimately, I think the right choice was made, which was to keep the radios alive. But in that process, a decision was made to actually move us here to the Czech Republic. That came at the invitation of then Czechoslovak President Václav Havel, who was a big fan of the radios, had appeared on Radio Free Europe broadcasts and listened to them ardently during his time as a a leader of uh, the opposition movement here in, in Prague. And I think the move to the Czech Republic really gave us a new lease on life. It brought an influx of staff, and about half our staff are actual local staff here in the Czech Republic. And being physically here in a place that we, like I said in our first broadcast, actually were trying to broadcast to, I think kind of inspired our journalists who are now broadcasting to places much further east in most cases but really gave us a sense of what the mission is and what the potential is when ultimately our our mission is successful. Are people still listening to radio? I listen to talk radio. For example, I listen to Hugh Hewitt in the morning, but I listen to it via my iPhone. So is radio still a a medium or is that your main medium? Or is it slightly a misnomer to say Radio Free Europe? And you said earlier, multimedia platform. Yeah, we still are on traditional radio in many markets, and we still have a sizable percentage of our overall output that goes out on radio. Some of that is skewed because of the markets in which we're on radio, mainly the largest Iran, Afghanistan, our Pakistan service that broadcasts the tribal regions of Pakistan. And obviously, in some of those markets, it's a a radio-heavy environment, especially uh, given that our audience is in rural areas where radio is sometimes the only option that they have. But the trend across all of our markets is transitioning to uh, other platforms. A number of years ago, probably uh, six or so years ago, we really moved into TV in a significant way. We now have a 24-7 Russian language TV network that's called Current Time. In all of our markets, even in places that you wouldn't expect, like Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, We're very active on digital means and especially on social media. The challenge we have in some of those places is that our websites are are blocked or banned. Some social media platforms in places like Iran are actually blocked and unavailable. But we find ways through whatever social media platform is available to reach our audiences. And our audiences, we find, often go to great lengths to reach our content, just like during the Cold War We had listeners who would sit by the radio, turn the dial to to get through all of the static caused by Soviet or Czechoslovak or Hungarian government jamming. We have people who use circumvention technology, VPNs, other means to get around blockages of our website to access our content. Are you actively blocked in many countries? We are in, uh, I don't have the full list in, in front of me, but yes, it's a perennial problem and it's not always constant in every country. Certainly like in a place like Iran, but there are other countries that will kind of turn 
our websites on and off just because they control the internet structure in that country. And as we've seen in you know just the last year in Iran, I think this is a challenge that not just us, but all international news organizations are, are looking at because uh, the Iranian regime obviously showed that they were willing to take the entire country off the internet. Kremlin has made similar noises about the so-called Russian internet, about walling off the Russian internet from the rest of the world and allowing only content that is for Russia. I mean, I fear that this may be a, a trend that we're seeing in many authoritarian states where they kind of want to learn from the Chinese model and control what their publics are able to see on the internet. And so we're actively looking at ways to circumvent that sort of internet outage if it comes to that in our markets. So would you say of your 26 countries where you're operating, are there at least a half dozen where there's some active interference by governments? Yes, certainly if you combine jamming and other types of interference. A new trend, which has been incredibly disturbing to me that I've seen as president of this organization, is even when our content is available to an audience, the latest trend that many governments are using is online harassment of our journalists. We'll be able to write what we want and publish what we want, but then the journalists in particular who were behind that piece of journalism will often get swarmed by online trolls. And it's not just, you know, people engaging in a political debate about the topics of that article. It can get very personal. It can be uh, physical threats. It's a female journalist. It can be sexist comments attacking them directly. And so this is something that, you know, is incredibly troubling. And in many cases, we have evidence that those sorts of attacks are actually state-directed. So the government-run troll farms that are behind this sort of harassment of our journalists. How do you balance uh, reporting the news with what people might say as a reporter being too friendly to, say, a particular regime? There's been some debate. I'm sure you follow this in the press. I'm sure this is something you all think about. There was something about the Voice of America or something like this. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I mean, it's a challenge in any situation where you're broadcasting into countries controlled by authoritarian regimes that want to exercise full control over the information landscape. We stress with our journalists, we want to adhere to the highest professional standards of journalism as we're instructed to in the, the statute that governs our funding. You know, we're trying to be balanced, to highlight both sides whenever possible. Even when it's an authoritarian government, we often have a bureau in that country. We try to interview government officials we will never take anything they say at face value, but we will air their views. We'll also then interview the opposition and present their perspective at the same time in the same story. And so I think it's important for our work, given that we are funded by the U.S. Congress and there are certain standards that are expected of us, that we do not just become a means of amplifying authoritarian viewpoints that actually runs counter to who we are as an organization and to our mission and to our history. And so we have a whole process, both in terms of the editorial control within the company to make sure that we don't have situations where we are just parroting regime talking points. We have a review process that we go through of all of our services. And then ultimately, we are responsible to our board and to the U.S. Agency for Global Media through which we receive our, our funding. And they determine whether we have appropriate controls in place to prevent that sort of thing from happening. How, how would you compare Radio Free Europe to DW or BBC, the German channel or BBC? 
We're somewhat similar. There's a lot of international broadcasters funded by democracies that operate in a similar space and have kind of similar history of doing a lot of radio in a variety of languages. We overlap in some markets. So in some markets, we're actually competitors with outlets like Deutsche Welle or the BBC. It varies, though, in terms of the types of programming that are being done, the number of languages. And then also, I mean, obviously what the BBC is known for is its global English content. And Deutsche Welle as well has a large English output. We primarily provide our output in the local languages, our 26 language services. We have an English language website, rferl.org, that highlights some of the best selections from our 26 language services, as well as some unique reporting from our region in, uh, by English journalists. So, you know, there are some similarities. I think overall, our missions overlap in the same uh, way that we all stress independent, objective journalism. It's outside of the national markets. The focus is really on countries where that independent journalism would otherwise not exist. And so we see them both as competitors, like I said, in some markets, but we also see them as, as partners that we sometimes work together with when necessary to do joint projects or just to share experiences in, in different countries. Can you talk about what your reach is in Iran and then tell me about how you engage in Russia? In Iran, our limitation there is because of the government's posture, we're not able to physically operate inside Iran. So our service, our Iran service, which is called Radio Farda, operates primarily out of our headquarters here in Prague. We also have freelancers in the Middle East and elsewhere who provide reporting that goes out on that service. We have a satellite stream, a radio stream, that provides a mix of radio content, news updates, some talk shows, but also combines that with music, which we think is important in that market and allows us to reach an audience that is not just coming to us for one type of content, but sometimes can keep that station on. It also goes out on a radio transmitter, so sometimes we can reach people in their cars. We also do a little bit of TV programming through Farda producing a, a daily breakfast news show out of our studios here in Prague. And we're covering everything from global developments related to Iran, U.S. policy, interviews with U.S. policymakers related to Iran, obviously the actions of the regime, human rights abuses. We've been covering the coronavirus situation in Iran extensively, given how devastating the pandemic has been to the Iranian population. And so it's kind of a, a full-service news operation. And we've got a decent-sized following inside Iran who both either listens to the content, watches the TV content, or increasingly engages with our content online. And we have a very active online presence for Radio Farda and the social media platform that we use the most just beyond the, the basic website is Instagram, which is one of the few social media platforms that's actually allowed inside Iran and we have a lot of people who engage with our content that way. Russia, we have a 24-7 TV uh, network that I mentioned called Current Time. We have radio content that we produce that's available either streaming online or some limited transmissions. And we have a sizable bureau in Moscow and a presence using freelancers throughout much of Russia. One trend that we've followed in recent years in Russia is to actually cover a lot of local issues which there's a broader problem in Russia of not having 
independent, objective reporting about national politics, national issues in Russia. It's often even worse at the local level in many of these countries, partly because of the same corporate pressures that have faced local media inside the U.S. You add in the government control and the efforts of local officials to control the narrative. And so we've tried to step in and provide some local reporting about things that really matter to people's day-to-day lives. Good. That's great. I think the other question I have for you is, do you report to BBG? And if so, what is the BBG? Tell me about that. Yeah, we've gone through different oversight structures over the course of our history. Starting in about the the 1970s, Congress began to get the State Department more involved in oversight of the radios. There have been different permutations of that. Eventually, the Broadcasting Board of Governors was established. This was a U.S. agency, but with an independent U.S. agency overseen by a bipartisan board, which was usually appointed by the president, Senate-confirmed individuals, People, former government officials, think tank scholars, regional experts, former journalists who were tasked with ensuring the editorial independence of RFERL as well as the newer international broadcasters like Middle East Broadcasting Network and Radio Free Asia. The board, it was intended to be the embodiment of the so-called firewall The Secretary of State is one of the board members, is really the only government board member. And it's enshrined in statute that it's actually illegal for a U.S. government official to try to force the networks to cover a certain story in a certain way or cover a particular topic on a particular day. So we do maintain that arm's length relationship with the State Department, with other government agencies to ensure our objectivity and our independence for our audience. And I think they expect that of us. But the U.S. Agency for Global Media, which is the current embodiment of the Broadcasting Board of Governors, does the day-to-day oversight of our work, our adherence to standards, and works with Congress to ensure that we receive the funding that we need on an annual basis. There's Radio Free Asia and there's Voice of America. How do you distinguish with those institutions? The two that are closest to us are uh, Radio Free Asia and Middle East Broadcasting Network, both which are headquartered in Washington. And both of them, honestly, were kind of modeled on the radios. We were the ones that were, we were the non-federal entity in U.S. international broadcasting that were around during the Cold War. And partly, I think, because of the success of the radios, there was a desire in Congress to reach other parts of the world beyond Eurasia using a similar approach to surrogate journalism. Part of the same family are also Office of Cuba Broadcasting and Voice of America. They're slightly different than us in the sense that they are both federal entities. So their journalists are actually federal employees, whereas Mm -hmm. we and the other two broadcasters I mentioned earlier are non-federal entities. We are 501c3 private companies. Now, we do a lot with all of the networks. We share content as much as possible. You know, we rely on Voice of America, for instance, often for its local language coverage of U.S. politics. We have a very small bureau in Washington, for instance. And when it comes to places like China, coverage of issues in Asia, which are increasingly important across our region, given China's growing influence, we would pick up content, videos, stories from our sister network, Radio Free Asia. So there's often a lot of content being shared between the networks. 
The other major difference I should just note between Voice of America and our work is that Voice of America, which was established around the same time as us, has a statutory mission of telling America's story. And many of its staff are actually in Washington. Its headquarters are in Washington. And again, that's a very different mission than the one that we have of doing surrogate journalism in our local markets. Obviously, our audiences care a lot about what happens in the United States, but it's only one of the things they come to us for. They often come to us primarily for our coverage of what's happening in their own country because that's what they're really missing from other sources. And so in that respect, kind of have a complementary mission to Voice of America. Jamie, one last question. If I say the term fake news, can you just word associate with the term fake news? I mean, it's increasingly, uh, I think President Trump has started a, a trend because it's something we often hear now in many of our markets where we operate. And I think it's a term that now a broader and broader group of politicians in particular like to hurl at journalists whenever they don't like the coverage of them or of some sort of policy that a government has put forward. You know, I think the, you know, journalism has been under attack in recent years. I think it's a disturbing trend given where I sit here and given what I see in the day-to-day struggles of our journalists. Not all journalists are perfect. There are journalists in the world who come in with a political bias and a political agenda. Our journalists here at Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, strive, though, to uphold the highest standards. And especially in the markets where we operate, the attacks they endure from political figures are not often something that are easy to just shrug off. Those attacks often are followed by either you know online harassment, which I mentioned earlier, or when it's very problematic, death threats, physical threats, actual threats to their safety, so much so that you know we occasionally have to help journalists evacuate out of the countries in which they're operating because it's just not safe for them to be there anymore. So yes, I, I know obviously there's been a lot of criticism of journalists in many places. But I think across Eurasia, where we operate, we need, if anything, we need more journalism. We need more independent journalists because there are audiences that are desperately hungry for objective news and information about what is going on around them. And that's been proven to be even more so the case in recent weeks, as we've seen how many governments have struggled to deal with this pandemic. Could you talk about what Russia's influences outside of its borders in in RFE, RL uh, countries? Yeah, Russia is the predominant external actor in most of the markets we operate in outside of, of Russia proper. It's everything from financial influence, sometimes overt, often covert and corrupting, to be blunt, in many of, of the places where we operate. There's a, obviously a historical and cultural attachment to Russia in, in many of the places we operate. The Russians have done an effective job, I think, of harnessing their own media to try to either expand or at least maintain that influence in many of uh, the countries in our coverage area. They do that through a number of, of state-funded outfits. They also do it through sometimes covert support of local media, which, you know, people would never know from the outside that uh, a local outlet that they may be relying on is funded directly by the Russians or sometimes by a pro-Kremlin oligarch in that local country. The other country, though, that's emerging onto the scene and is increasingly a priority for us across our coverage area is China. 
And prior to coronavirus, I don't think we had seen China really engage as much in the information space across Eurasia, or if they had done so, it had been very sporadic. But just in the last six weeks, we've seen a significant increase in the amount of Chinese propaganda being pushed into many of these markets. A lot of it is tied to coronavirus specifically, to China's own dealing with coronavirus, its personal protective equipment diplomacy that's been underway across much of our coverage area ever since China got the virus under control inside its borders. And so those are the two biggest actors. And the role that we really play in responding to that is often just exposing disinformation that is being propagated. We do this anyways when local actors are lying to their publics or governments are not honest with their publics about a situation. But we also do this with external actors like China and Russia. And we have a variety of programs, journalism, sometimes investigative journalism when it comes to financial influence that really bring more sunlight onto what is actually going on for local citizens so they can then make up their minds about what they want to believe. Jamie, this has been great. I really appreciate the time. I know you're really busy. Thanks for your public service over there. It's a really important work, and we want to have you back at CSIS and physically when things normalize. This is really great. Keep up the good work out there. Thanks so much for doing it, Dan, and would love to host you or any of your listeners once people are able to travel again. Let us know. Come visit our headquarters in Prague. I promise to do that. Thanks, Jamie. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 